The Tragedy of Cinema podcast is intended as a family-friendly program that by extension strives to be inclusive to all people regardless of their ethnicity, gender, creed, or any other identifying factors in this incredibly diverse world of ours. With that said, some of the films we discuss may contain serious subject matters or have content considered morally objectionable by today's standards. We do not intend to condone or dismiss these aspects of these films, but our primary focus will be on what we believe our film succeeds at, some fun facts, and our personal enjoyment factors of each film. With that said, we hope you enjoy the show. Alright guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema. I'm your host Jimbo, and joined again today by... Kyle. Kyle, today we are discussing probably one of the greatest science fiction movies of all time uh, from the late 70s, uh, Alien, which will be episode 131 of this podcast. But Kyle, before we start, would you like a question? Uh, No, Jimbo, no questions today. I'm questioned out. Since you didn't want a question, (laughs) I'm going to tell you if you were in this movie what I think you would be. (laughs) Am I the alien? <laughs> no, no, no. Am no. I the face hugger? Am I the <laughs> No. I'm just saying I can, I can if you were gonna hugger. die if you were gonna die in this movie, you know the How famous chest bursting scene. Mm-hmm. You would be uh the same guy, but it wouldn't be coming out of your chest. <laughs> coming out of my foot. Yeah. yeah. Foot, foot alien. Foot. The fart alien is the fart alien. Yeah, the fart alien. Yeah, the foot. The fart alien. Yeah, the fart. How'd Kyle die? The fart alien. The fart. The fart got him. The fart got him. And now we're just 
I always knew this would happen. Can't believe we had a fart joke in the first minute of the movie. So exactly, classic. All right, Kyle, this is a big movie, so uh, let's go ahead and get started on it. Gantuan, even. All right, well, I'll get right into it here. We have the movie Alien, released on May nineteenth of nineteen seventy nine, directed by the legendary Ridley Scott, director of such films as like Blade Runner and Alien and other films. And uh, I didn't have a list on hand, but I was it like, like uh, Pitch Black? I think Pitch Black. Uh, no, I don't think he did Pitch Black. There was a movie of uh, the the one. Um, the, 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 the great, not great Renaissance. Uh, <laughs> uh, really, Scott's a great director, guys. Um, written by Dan O'Brien for the screenplay and Ronald Shusset for the story. Composer Jerry Goldsmith. Cinematographer Derek um, Van Lint. Editors David Crowther and Terry Rollins and Peter Weatherly. Casting director was Mary Goldberg. And production designer was Michael Seymour. Budget of the film was $11 million flat. Just for inflation today, it'd be about $44.3 million today. Opening weekend came in just with $3.5 million. Just for inflation, it'd be about $14.2 million today. But gross world, uh, gross in the US and Canada, it came back strong with $81.9 million. And just for inflation again, it'd be about $330 million today. And gross worldwide would be $106.2 million. Adjusted for inflation would be about $428.4 million today. Big money there. All right, Kyle. Here's Ridley Ridley Scott movies. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Alien, Blade Runner, Legend. Legend. uh, Thelma and Louise. Mm -hmm. uh, G.I. Jane, Gladiator, Hannibal, Black Hawk Down, Matchstick Men, Kingdom of Heaven, American Gangster, Body of Lies, Robin Hood, Prometheus... Exodus, Gods and Kings, The Martian, Alien Covenant, uh, The Last Duel, uh, House of Gucci, and coming out in 2023, that is in post-production, Napoleon. So, he did not do Pitch Black. No, he did not do Pitch Black. Okay, didn't do Pitch Black. But um, still, like, really Scott to me as a director kind of feels like he almost deserves to be in the same kind of like vein of like, you know, George Lucas, James Cameron, Steven Spielberg, but never quite reaches that level of recognition, I feel like. You know, like he's like just below it, and he desperately wants to be in the level of recognition. I think where he wants to be seen as the visionary, almighty director who could do amazing things, or Martin Scorsese, or something like that. You know, in that same vein. And I think he's an incredibly skilled director, but just not quite held to that kind of level of uh, of uh, uh, you know, what people expect from him. Anyways, mm-hmm. yeah. But um, going forward here, um, we have a going to be a quick little plot summary of the movie. In the distant future, the crew of the commercial starship Nostromo are on their way home when they pick up a distress call from a distant moon. The crew are under obligation to investigate the spaceship and descends on the moon afterwards. After a rough landing, three crew members leave the spaceship to explore the area of the moon at the same time as they discover a hive colony of some unknown creature. Their ship's computer deciphers a message to, to be a warning, not a distress call. And when one of the eggs is disturbed, the crew realizes that they are not alone on the spaceship and they must deal with the consequences. Yeah, it's kind of a rough summary from IMDb there. <laughs> but, girls, everyone kind of knows the, the general idea of Alien. <laughs> Especially if you watch the film. You should watch the film before you listen to this podcast. We'll talk spoiler stuff later. <laughs> Excellent movie. Yeah. Um, moving on here, we're going to go to the awards section here, which has a ton of awards, mostly for its DVD work, but we're going to focus on like the main like awards that won for the year release. 
So first off, I'm just going to start immediately with the Academy Awards, where it won the Oscar in 1980 for Best Visual Effects. Word to H.R. Geiger, Carlo Rambaldi, Nick Alder, Dennis Alling, and Brian Johnson. It also was nominated for Best Art Direction and On-Set Direction. Then, 1980, we have the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, where it was nominated for Best Special Effects. It won the Best Science Fiction Film, nominated for Best Makeup, Best Writing, won Best Supporting Actress, awarded to Veronica Cartwright, um, won Best Director, awarded to Ridley Scott, and nominated for Best Actress for Sigourney Weaver's role. You know, I kept reading Cartwright in the notes, and all I could think of was... Bart Simpson. <laughs> Nancy Cartwright. Nancy Cartwright. Yeah, I have no Maybe I have a relation. I have no idea. <laughs> like a cousin or uh, something like that. Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, possibly. I have no idea. Then 1980 in the BAFTA Awards, it was nominated for Best Screen Actor to John Hurt. Um, one Best Soundtrack were Jim Shields, Derek Leather, and Bill Royal. And then nominated for um, the Anthony Asquith Award for Film Music to Jerry Goldsmith. It won the Best Production Design, awarded to Michael Seymour, and was nominated for the Most Promising Newcomer to a Leading Film Role. I believe that was to Sigourney Weaver. There's a little cut off on the print right there. Um, da, da, da. And then we have the Golden Globes, where it was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Original Score for Jerry Goldsmith. Then in 1980 Awards, it had a um, nomination for the Grammy Awards for Best Album of Original Score Written for a Motion Picture or Television Special. Then, and also in 1980, we won a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. Award is the uh, director, Ridley Scott, um, screen, the screenplay writer, um, Renald Shissett, and Dan O'Brien for the also doing the story and screenplay work. Then also in 79, we have the British Society, the British Society of Cinematographers, where it was nominated for the Best Cinematography Award to Derek Van Lint. Then in 79, there's also the Jupiter Award, where it was nominated for the Best International Actress to Scorny Weaver. And then also in 1979, there was the San Sebastian International Film Festival, where it was nominated for Best Film and won Best Cinematography and Special Effects. And that is the awards for Alien right there. Then we're going to move on to the cast notes here. Cast here, we have Tom Skerritt playing the character role of Dallas. The, the leading man of the role, anyways. And then we have the leading lady coming up here. Tom Skerritt was in the film Contact in 1997, another science fiction film, um, well-regarded. And then we also have the film A River Runs Through It. Next up, we have the legendary Sigourney Weaver playing the role of Ripley. Sigourney Weaver, of course, best known for such films. Also, um, James Cameron Avatar, most recently, Avatar 2, where she plays a young woman now. And in Galaxy Quest in 1999. And uh, Ghostbusters. I was going to say, you're going to forget Ghostbusters. I'm not going to forget Ghostbusters. I'm not going to forget Ghostbusters. And uh, a ton of other roles. Sigourney Weaver, excellent actress, many films under her belt. Excellent stuff. And then next up, we have Veronica Cartwright playing the character of Lambert. Veronica Cartwright, um, also known for such films such as The Witches of Eastwick and 1987, and Flight of the Navigator, which we just recently covered on this very podcast just a few weeks ago. Next up, we have Harry and Dean Stanton playing the character of Brett. Harry Dean Stanton was also in the film um, Lucky in 2017. I believe it was actually his final film for his passing. Um, excellent little uh, kind of a Western film. And he was also in Christine, the, um, the, uh, the, 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 the Stephen King film in 1983. He didn't direct that one. He directed uh, 
which one did Stephen King direct? Do you remember which one it was? Was it the Overdrive movie with the mad cars? I think it was that. Um, gross. Um, Stephen King book, movie, Christine. I don't remember who directed that. <laughs> car, Christine. Yeah, minor regression. Yeah, car, Christine, evil car. Good movie. Next up, we have John Hurt playing the role of Kane. John Hurt was also in the film 1984 in the year 1984. And he was also in the movie Hellboy in 2004, one of my personal favorites. And he was in Snowpiercer in 2013. Next up, we have Ian Holm playing the character of Ash. Ian Holm was also in The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, and The Fellowship of the Ring, and uh, the, was the Two Towers. That's what it was. Yes, where he played, um, oh, was it Bilbo? Bill Bilbo, thank you. Bilbo Baggins. I was going to say Frodo by accident. <laughs> it's early in the morning for me. <laughs> um, he's also, of course, in the Fifth Element, where he plays the plays the uh, the priest. The oh, fifth I love the Fifth Element. element. Yes, <laughs> excellent movie. And uh, Fifth Element was in 1997. Oh gosh, how time flies. Next up, we have. Um, um, I'm going to mispronounce his name. And I'm going to feel bad for that, but um, Yapit Koto playing the character of Parker. Yapit Koto was also in the films Homicide, Life on the Street in 1993. Live and Let Die in 1973, and Midnight Run in 1988. That was a good movie, Midnight Run. Uh, I've actually never seen Midnight Run. It was uh, Robert De Niro, right? Mm, I think Robert. I think so. I think, I think it was Robert De Niro. Maybe. Yeah, I might have to check that one. Uh, I think it was a Robert De Niro film, but I, I own it, but I never watched it, of course. But that, Imagine that why you own it. Yeah, I'm one of the several hundred movies I own. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Robert De Niro uh, and Charles Grodin. Yeah. Next up, we have Helly, Helen Horton, not Helly, <laughs> Helen Horton, um, playing the uh, role of, who. <laughs> the role of the playing the voice only role of Mother, the ship's AI computer. Um, Helen Horton was also in the films Superman Three in 1983, love it, and Let's Be Happy in 1957. Then, last and certainly not least, we have Eddie Powell playing the role of the alien. Eddie Powell. Oh, excuse me, there. My apologies. We have Eddie Powell was also in the films Legend in 1985 and Second Chances in 2014. Oh, and uh, oh, one final little note there. Um, I don't have the name of the cats themselves, but four different cats played the role of Jonesy, <laughs> Sigourney Weaver's yeah, cat in the movie. Yeah, Kyle was going to leave the cat off the cast list. I, I said, Kyle, you can't leave the cat off. It's like leave a Toto off the cast list of Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah, probably would there too. <laughs> I probably but, did. But, but, but you know, <laughs> watching this movie. Why did the alien just eat the cat? I mean, there were several instances where he could eat, especially when uh, Sigourney Weaver turns around that thing and he's in his cage and he just you see him like looking at the cat like this, like oh the cat's a goner. You know what I mean? Well, the cat can still get into more places than the xenomorph can. Maybe, and he, there's more interesting prey on the way. Maybe he, maybe he did kill him, and it was just the cat using his nine lives. Oh, oh think of that one. He's very but clever. But very clever. <laughs> Jumbo, <laughs> you're awful. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Jumbo, we can move on to the cast notes, and then we we'll get on to like kind of our thoughts on the film because we got a lot of notes to go through. For you sure. say we are moving on to the cast notes. Moving on to the notes, notes, our trivia, our fun <laughs> oh, facts. Oh. I was going to say we just our, our, our big old section of facts of this film, which there are. Yeah, there. Ton. I think there was 29 pages of notes, so we trimmed it down some. Um, there's still a lot, so I divided them up with Kyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, just cause it's just it's just a lot. There's so, a whole lot too, and that'll also open up opportunities to just talk about our favorite moments of the film too. Which right. Are so what I'll do me. is what we'll do with this, Kyle, since this is so an epic size note portion, mm-hmm. is I'll do a page of mine, then we'll let you go to a page of yours, and then we'll just bounce it back. I think, and I have, forth. A, you think you have a bigger stack than me. That's right. Goes. It'll work out. We'll, right. we'll figure it out as we go. Okay, I'll do two. You do one. Yeah, yeah, something like that. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. It's too early to deal. We'll with do it live. <laughs> too early to deal with you today. I know. 
seen All it right. every day. <laughs> so here we go. Some of the fun trivia facts and about production and all that. So uh, Veronica Cartwright had originally auditioned to play Ripley, but producers opted for Sigourney Weaver instead. Weaver was initially more interested in playing Lambert because in the early screenplay, Lambert was written as a wise-cracking character. And later rewrites, the role of Lambert became much more subdued and serious and was given to Cartwright. So Cartwright could have been mm-hmm. Ripley. Um, did you, um, and later in your parts of the cast notes there, did you actually get some of the other actors that were considered for the role of Ripley? Because uh, I have a few of them off the top of my head well, that I can kind of mention to you. I, I, somewhere in here there is, I do believe, but... Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to go ahead and do it now, we well, can skip I, that I, when we get to it. Yeah, yeah. We're well, we not to skip necessarily, but we can go through it again. But I know one of the um, original. Um, I know people, Meryl Streep. Was, Meryl Streep was yeah the character I was going to bring up. Who did because, because did you know that Sigourney Weaver and her were actually roommates at Yale? I do believe. Mm-hmm. But the only reason that Streep didn't go for it is because she was mourning the passing of her her companion yeah. I can't remember his name it's in the notes yeah yeah but uh, she would have been um, very interesting to see that role instead of Sigourney Weaver I think she could have done it but uh, okay let me her. ask you a question mm-hmm. go for it so if Meryl Streep would have done this movie can you see Meryl Streep as bald in like Aliens 3 that would have been weird <laughs> thank you but also it totally would have been really sure, weird. why not or the idea of Meryl Streep playing an action star in that sense is like completely out of left field for me, but I want to see that universe where that happened. But you sure. did see her in uh, Death Becomes Her. She was kind of an evil action. Not comedy. in the same way that no. that, was, that was a she comedy. wasn't carrying a gun. There was dumb stuff. But yeah, yeah, the idea of like like imagine we were she's holding a rifle and like, doing the whole thing. Where it's like that's that's way out I, of left field. I Rambo exactly doing the whole Rambo thing, bandana and all, just grizzled war vet Meryl Streep. Like wow, that'd be cool to see. I want that universe too. But, Somewhere uh, in an alternate universe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Moving on. An early draft of the script uh, had a Mel Ripley, making this one of at least three movies where Sigourney Weaver played a character originally planned to be a man. Alien um, was one, and the others being the TV set, which I've never seen, and heard of. Vantage Point. Vantage Point. I have not actually seen Vantage Point either. Um, gosh, was that the was that, that the one that on just that? came out not too long ago? I don't think so. I mean, for me, the Vantage Point like a movie... I don't even think it was anybody who was in it. So no, I have no idea what. Vantage what was is. what was that movie where they? I want to say it's less than ten years old. Where they shot the the movie and then you see the vantage point from each character of the movie. They like show the yeah no there was a is that, 2008 is that film I'm, a vantage is that point what I'm in 2008 of? yeah with Dennis Quaid and yeah Sigourney Weaver was in that too. I didn't oh, realize she was even in that yeah. yeah. So that was it. Um, and she played the character of Russ, Rex Brooks in that movie. Yes. And uh, I have never seen it. It's but, a good movie. It's yeah, not bad. I gotta check it out. Cool. All right. Uh, the front face part of the alien costume's head is made from a cast of a real human skull. Mm-hmm. Um, oh man, uh, should, I, should I throw a joke at Kyle here? Sure, go ahead for it. Am I, am I, I was a say, real human we know, skull too? We know, we know this wasn't Kyle's skull because it wasn't big enough. <laughs> Saying I got a large head. <laughs> hey, at least I didn't say torso. It's not, necessarily, stomach, right? not necessarily an insult, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Just saying that's because of all the yeah. brains up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, three aliens were made for uh, for this movie. Uh, one was a model. Uh, one was a suit for the almost seven foot tall, and I'm going to slaughter his name, and I apologize, but Bolaji Badejo, mm-hmm. Badejo, Badejo, and another suit for a trained stuntman. Uh, the models had to be repainted every evening of the shoot because the slime used on set removed the acrylic paint from the surfaces. Oh my god, that's terrible. Yeah. Uh, 
Nostromo is the title of Joseph Conrad's book. Uh, the shuttlecraft is called The Narcissist from the title of another Joseph Conrad book. Yeah. Uh, um, I think one fun fact about like the um, the rip. It, part of how this film works, the same reason that Steven Spielberg's uh, Jaws works as well, is just because like, um, the reason it didn't have like a ton of you know scenes of the shark in Jaws is because the shark didn't work, the prop they made. Same kind of reason in this film too, where it's like, if you look at the like the, the director's cut has a little bit of it, but like if you look at the scenes where the actors in the suit, um, I forget the character's name already, we can pronounce. I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna butcher it again. Um, but like you look at those scenes, it looks dumb and silly <laughs> in the yes. background shots. It really does. So instead, they had to limit all the shots they use, similar to the Jaws, where it's like you only show these aliens and like only its face or only that like pincering jaw kind of. Well, thing. this has been Project, uh, protruding jaw thing. This has been dubbed like Jaws, the Jaws and space uh deservedly so and, right. the, and it, but it's also for the same reasons it's just like they couldn't use that prop so they had to be very selective about how they used it right and it worked for the film in a whatever way yeah. um extra scenes filmed but not included due to pacing problems are as follows the crew listens to the eerie signal from the planetoid an additional discussion between parker and ripley over the comm concerning the progress on the nostromo's engines a scene in which a furious Lambert hits Ripley for her earlier refusal to let her team back aboard the Nostromo. An additional conversation between Lambert and Ash in which Lambert notices a dark patch over Kane's lungs on the scanner, uh, foreshadowing Kane's uh, fate. Yeah. A discussion among the crew immediately following Kane's death on how to proceed further. An alternate death scene for Brett. Ripley and Parker witness Brett still alive being lifted from the ground. Ripley and Lambert discuss whether Ash has sex or not. An unfinished scene in which Parker spots the alien next to an airlock door. He asks Ripley and Lambert over the comm to open the airlock and flush the alien into space. However, the alien is warned by a siren and escapes, but not before he gets injured by a door. And its blood creates a small hole, causing a short hole. Mm -hmm. Which I thought that was really... uh, And, you know, I didn't really think about it till till towards the end of the movie last night. Like, when the uh, facehugger... Mm-hmm. When they did that and the acid started dripping through it, and it went like what through three decks of the yeah, ship. Yeah, three decks of the ship. Then I started. I was like, why don't they just shoot this alien? You know, what I mean. And then I started yeah. thinking, well, if this alien starts bleeding all over the place, you're gonna have a hole in your hole, That's, and it's just gonna be. Sucked out, and space. that was intentional from the start. They didn't want this to be a gun movie, so they had to make sure, like that's what they did—the the molecular acid um, blood, because they wanted to create an alien. Where, like, if you if you squash this thing, it's going to create a lot more problems than it actually solves. Right. At the end of the day, and that's a brilliant part of the design too, and also makes him a compelling. You know, it makes him a good monster for a sci-fi film where you think you have the answers to these problems. Like, even a laser would cause it to still bleed out and cause more problems in itself. In each case, right? Yeah. Um, the alien's habit of laying eggs in the chest, which later burst out, was inspired by spider wasps, which are said to lay their eggs in the abdomen of spiders. This image is, uh, gave Dan O'Brien nightmares, which he used to create the story. But spider wasps lay eggs on their prey, not inside of them, after which the wasp maggots simply snack on the, <laughs> snack on the sting-paralyzed spiders. O'Bannon may instead have been thinking of either, uh, and I'm going to butcher this, Echonomium wasp or uh, Brocknid wasp. The Echonomium drills a single egg into a wood-boring beetle larva, whereas the Brocknids inject eggs inside certain caterpillars. 
both result in far hatched outs, more like the abandoned alien. That's also kind of like I promise I won't have a digression for every single note you have. Liar, <laughs> liar. But I digress. Yeah, but I digress. But uh, I think that's also like um, part of the um, uh, inception of the Last of Us video game, and now the current um, ongoing TV series had a similar idea of the cordyceps mushroom kind of infesting itself and ants and the. Um, the real life scenario and kind of bursting out of the ant and becoming like a huge um, uh, a treat for birds to eat and then you know presumably spread over of course but um, similar idea of like you know the infection gets inside of you then it literally bursts out of your flesh in the most terrifying way and that was kind of like a source of inspiration from Aliens to the Last of Us now so it all goes back to Aliens all the time uh, there was uh, over 130 alien eggs made for the egg chamber inside the downed spacecraft wow uh, Sir Ridley Scott's 2003 director's cut largely came about when over 100 boxes of footage was discovered in a London vault. I like how all of a sudden they just discover all this found footage all the time, you know, extra footage. It's the most crazy. And it's ridiculous. It's, it's like, what's funny is that applies to everything too. Like, right. Like, that just, like it, you know, huge big, you know, huge big music bands. Like, like oh yeah, we, we lost the gold record of that like 20 years ago and we have no idea what's happening. And then they find like an apartment in London 30 yeah, years like, later. It's like the lost record of the Beatles or something. Exactly. I was like, how do you lose this? You know? like, what do you mean? You're the biggest thing in the world. How do you lose that? <laughs> Many of the interior features of the Nostromo were inspired by images from airplane graveyards. Uh, for the awakening from hypersleep segment, Veronica Cartwright and Sigourney Weaver had to wear white surgical tape over their nipples so as to not offend certain countries. <laughs> Uh, to simulate the thrust of engines on the Nostromo, Sir Ridley Scott had crew members shake and wobble in the seat to which the actors and actresses were sitting. I feel your pain because Kyle comes into the record like, every day and he just sits here and shakes around all the time. Anyway. like every Star Trek actor ever. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, oh, uh, Leap to the left. Leap to the left. To the left. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, H.R. Geiger's initials designed for the facehugger were held by the U.S. Custom. Uh, his initial designs for the facehugger were actually held by U.S. Customs, who were alarmed at what they saw. <laughs> Dan O'Brien had to go to Los Angeles International Airport to explain to them that they were designed for a horror movie. <laughs> the actual production design of the facehugger used by sculptors to make the real prop was created by Dan O'Bannon, as O'Bannon had trained as uh, the designer. A Geiger wasn't available in England at the time, so he was, I guess he was going through customs and like... Oh this? my gosh, yeah. <laughs> if you had no idea. Finding anything from HR Geiger funny, has to be concerning. Funny thing, though, is you can actually get a, for those of us that wear a CPAP machine, you can actually get the face hugger as your CPAP, C- machine. CPAP machine mask, which is just ridiculous. <laughs> I love it. Kyle wishes he had one. Um, probably will need a CPAP machine. Hey, when we go to Comic Con this year, you should just get one and wear a face hugger on your like face. Dr. Say it's a face hugger on it. All your pictures. <laughs> that you take with celebrities. Just photoshop just, it on. No, no. Just wear the face hugger <laughs> over your face and we'll take your picture with Yeah. Hey, like one of those, like, Gordy Weaver's there. One you have to do it. hoodies you can zip up to your face and just has a face hugger that comes over your hood. You have to. That would be great. Sigourney Weaver's there. You have to wear a face I, hugger and get your picture I, with I, it. I, I, if I ever got to meet Scorny Weaver, I would never wear a mask. I'd be like, you see my face with Scorny Weaver, right? We're in the same room? I'm happy now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Where was I? You just, no you just had to throw that. Up. I, I forgot where we were. You started it. I, oh, found footage. Oh, no. Yeah, uh, found footage. Nipples. Okay, let's keep going. Found footage, nipples. Yeah. Wobbly seats. Okay. No, the face hugger. There's where we are. Okay. The chest bursting scene was not filmed in one take despite the myth. The scene was filmed twice. On the first take, the chest buster did not make it through Kane's shirt, so the crew needed to reset and shoot again. The failed attempt is visible in the finished film since Ridley thought it made it look like the creature was struggling to push its way out and made the scenes more violent. 
So you can see that in the Beast Within documentary where it is discussed. Yeah, yeah. And the whole scenes there were like, his, his whole spasming scene, like, no one can spasm like he does. Because, like, it really does this, like, oh, gosh, we got to hold him down. Someone's going to break. He does it so perfectly well. Well, thank so you, Dr. Kyle, way. for uh, saying nobody can spasm like he does. <laughs> Jeez. Highest uh, compliment I can give. To get Jones the cat to react fearfully to the descending alien, a German shepherd was placed in front of him with a screen between the two so the cat wouldn't see it at first. The screen was then suddenly removed to make Jones stop advancing and start hissing. <laughs> Poor cat. No wonder they needed four. He probably, probably had a heart attack. Poor thing. Yeah. Um, Dallas's pursuit of the alien down the ventilator shafts and the intercut scenes of the rest of the crew urging him on were all shot in one day. Um, it was conceptual artist Ron Cobb who came up with the idea that the alien should bleed acid. This came about when Dan O'Bana ran into a wall with a screenplay on how to handle the last half of the movie. He needed a good reason for why the crew members don't just shoot the thing and kill it, but it make it an indestructible monster that can't be killed. The acid blood was the ideal that solved the problem, which we talked about a little earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sir Ridley Scott did all of the handheld camera work himself because it was such a confined space. He had to use a handheld camera for a lot of the shooting. Uh, the creature is never filmed directly facing the camera due to the humanoid features of its face. Sir Ridley Scott determined at all costs to dispel any notion of a man in a rubber suit. But if you yeah. see it, it is... A man in a rubber oh, suit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Originally, the idea was have it be like humanoid, because like, like I said, they built in that humanoid skull and the kind of translucent head of it, kind of going forward. And it wasn't until later, like in the Aliens and other sequels, they decided, like, oh yeah, let's actually have it take on the traits of whoever it um, inhabited. Like I think it was like Alien three or four, where it got inside of a cow, and then later it gets on like bull, kind of like stereotypes or it gets in like a dog so it gets like more that's what I was saying why did he just you know latch on to the if he was if the alien was like there was concept that he was dying that's why he got on the he was wanting to go somewhere to die or Mm. uh, reproduce whatever why didn't he just get the cat that's what that's what I was thinking but yeah, and I, well, I think part of what works with the horror of the alien, especially in this film, is that like its motives are completely unclear and also inconsistent too. Like when um, it gets through uh, the Dallas's, like it takes his body, but it doesn't take the other bodies. It doesn't take like um, it doesn't take uh, Brett's body, for instance. It just kills Brett, kills his skull, and then drags him, away, and then and, like kills him away a little bit, but doesn't like take him away. Whereas like Ash is almost like, is he eating it? Is he consuming it? We have no idea. Is the alien that he even is it a she? You don't actually know that in the film, which I think works very well. You know, later in the sequels, you get more details, which kind of dispel a little bit of the horror. But still, in this one film, things don't make sense, but in a good way of like they're more confusing, more disorienting. It makes me feel more uneasy in this film. So I really appreciate that. Uh, according to Sir Ridley Scott, the mechanism that was used <laughs> to make the alien egg open was so strong that it could tear off a hand. I'd stay away from that. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. That's uh, terrifying. Because I do believe it's Ridley Scott's hand in a rubber thing that's breaking through the egg. Oh. Uh, oh. I, I think it's in here. Oh, cool. Um, Jerry Goldsmith, once again, uh, one of the great composers of, in, in movie history, um, he was he was upset by the changes that Sir Ridley Scott and editor Terry Rawlings wrought upon his score. Scott felt that Goldsmith's first attempt at the score was far too lush and needed to be a bit more minimalist. Goldsmith did a second attempt, but was horrified to discover that his amended score had been dropped in places by... Kyle, what are you doing? It wasn't me. It was the alien. (laughs) Uh, Dropped in places by Rawlings, who inserted segments from Goldsmith's earlier score for Frood instead, and had replaced his final with Howard Hansen's Symphony No. 2. Rawlings had initially used these as a guide track only, but both he and Scott ended up preferring them to Goldsmith's revised work. 
Goldsmith harbored a grudge against the two for a very, very long time. I can certainly understand that, but also I would say like the music in this film is incredibly, you know, is incredible. I think this is one of the. This is a, definitely a film like we watched it in the 4K UHD kind of like territory, high dynamic range and excellence like that too. But this is one of those films where like you're kind of surprised by like if you're investing in a huge entertainment system, it rewards you immensely. Um, it's like this is the kind of film you actually buy it for. It turns out, mm-hmm. you know, like lots of other films like. Yeah. They don't hold up that well, but occasionally they do. Um, moving on here, I'm going to take on a page because Jim went through two pages and he almost covered everything on each page where I covered like half of one page here, but I'll get through all the same. Um, the person in charge of the Nostromo set was a former serviceman who had the idea that every label on the ship has to have a clear meaning and proper purpose. He thus invented the, it, this interstellar standard for signs, labels, and commercials of space flight. You know, so he had a whole unified standard of like, hey, if you see any sign of the ship, it has purpose, has meaning. And if you want to dig in and try and find the details yourself, it all kind of makes some kind of formal sense, which I really appreciate. According to Dan O'Brien, H.R. Geiger, and really Scott through interviews, through interviews for various years, and the behind the scenes and making of documentaries about the film, at one point, both the face hugger and the xenomorph were going to have eyes. As shown in the concept drawings of the characters, the face hugger was supposed to have one single eye front and center of the body between the webbing of the two sets of fingers, and the xenomorph would have two large eyes, variously shown as either bug eyes or eyes resembling the lenses of sunglasses. However, no one was really satisfied with the looks, so they decided to be more unsettling to the audience if the creatures had no eyes and were guided solely by instinct. However, if you look at behind-the-scenes footage of of Geiger building the Xenomorph costume, the head does have a human skull head beneath the smooth top of its head. That is, elongated head itself is actually a thick but translucent. So the idea may have been that the Xenomorph does indeed have eyes that are simply shielded or hidden beneath the smooth skin of the head instead of visible on the surface of the head. So, I don't know. Yeah. I think it makes it more scary if he doesn't have eyes and he's just hunted by smell or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, like kind of like an echolocation or something yeah. like that too. Like regardless, it's just like a continue, like he's a very uneasy creature to even look at because you don't know where to look at him at even given moment. So yeah, I think um, which the, is even really ironic because they make up that thing to track him by movement. <laughs> if yeah. He's doing the same thing to them. Exactly. That kind of creates, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the back and forth of like, oh yeah, they're both kind of just sensing each other in the same way and the Xenomorph is a lot better at it than they are. <laughs> they're uncomfortable about it where it's like, we're using your eyes, he's using the movement and we have to use movement too and we're not as good. So I love that too. Like the... Um, the, the alien has the advantage on us in so many ways that I really appreciate in this film. Um, when Brett takes off his hat and gets soaked by the falling water, you can hear the xenomorph hiss with anticipation in the spray. Um, that, that is one of the coolest scenes in the movie. That whole, like, chains dangling around and that whole, like, wet room, which makes no sense to have in a yeah, show. Why would he have yeah, running that, water that was in the notes, constantly like, dripping around? Yeah, yeah. yeah, but Ridley Scott said... Uh, but it looks cool. I want it. And it's also amazing. That's our first real look at the huge alien. But because of the way the scene's shown, like, you don't even see it. You don't even see it dangling on top there if you're not actually looking for it. So it's like, it's hidden in plain sight. Well, you don't know what it looks like. Yeah, you don't know what it looks like. So it's literally hidden in plain sight. It's literally front and center of that image. But because it's just dangling and swinging with the chains, you don't even notice it. And it wasn't until, like, repeat viewings. I'm like, oh, my God, it's right there. <laughs> and it's amazing he just looks up and he's like ah he just gets his skull burst ah amazing scene amazing scene um <laughs> okay moving on it is never stated why a commercial towing vehicle such as the Nostromo would need a self-destruct mechanism however several series several theories have been proposed by fans in the years since in an emergency it'd be better to blow up an out of control starship hauling a colossal ore refinery rather than allow it to crash into a populated planet 
colony or space station. Contemporary space rockets include self-destructions in case they veer off course at launch, and the system would serve would be similar purpose, although it seems likely that the Shermos was built to orbit rather than launched from Earth. The presence of colonial marines in the aliens universe imply there must be a threat or threats that marines have established to counter. Therefore, self-destruct systems may be designed to prevent valuable equipment and technology from falling to the hands of competitors, pirates, or terrorists. A huge starship could be a devastating weapon if captured. I'm going to my next page here. I'm going to do the next page too. Why not? Look at this guy. Yeah, right? I want to take initiative, Jimbo. I feel like I'm being good about it. Well, that would be the first time in the history of this podcast you took initiative. <laughs> yeah, I'm having second thoughts now. <laughs> I was kidding. It was a joke. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Um, uh, Scott's original refinery design looked like a um, looked literally like a long, upside-down cathedral. And even in the current design, I think you're going to get that same one with like three massive, uh, four massive pillars kind of spiraling up in the sky there, too. And I just love the idea of like this, you know, this giant ore refinery which feels like the size of like you know four giant buildings four empire state buildings basically stacked on top of each other but you just have a crew of less than eight with less than ten people managing this whole thing of essentially like a value of you know potentially billions of dollars of today's profits would be in that ship alone um, and uh, that kind of goes further into some of the Android stuff I'll talk about later but like that's why gas prices are so high yeah yeah, yeah. but it's like it's like it's, you know it's, it's it's you know like imagine a cargo ship you know like managed by less than 10 people is like that's yeah. insane and now the scale is like even more exponentially like the next level of uh, <laughs> of uh, the you know, uh, Dramatic increase, you know, the next exponential layer to it. So that's insane to me. Um, shortly after the failed attempts to remove the facehugger from Kane, Ash is seen observing an embryo on the monitor. He immediately turns off the monitor when Ripley appears to question, revealing that he knows Kane is impregnated and does not need to does not intend to disclose that knowledge. Um, I believe that's only in the um, uh, the director's cut of the film there, but it's uh, very clear that. Um, uh, Ash is completely aware of the original provocative. Like, they think it's an alien. Uh, Ash knows that it's an alien, or he suspects it's an alien, and is basically, like, toying with all the actual, um, um, the, the real workers on the station. And using well, you like, come to find out in the movie that Ash isn't who he appears to be, too. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean, though. But, like, yeah, from the very start, though, they, they lay the seeds that Ash is, you know, the books aren't what they seem. Ash is working for the company first and foremost, as the other ones are trying to survive, and Ash is playing with them as almost a science experiment. Um, absolutely devious and evil. Well, I and, think uh, we should talk right here about... Uh, so Sigourney yeah. Weaver is questioning him, and they're wanting to know, you know, why did you do this? Why would you do this? And she's, he's like, I don't know. They're, they won't give me no answers. So she goes to this thing called Mother, which is a, like a supercomputer uh, in like the ship. Yeah. And she's putting in all this information and ask all these questions. And she ends up getting, to, I think it was like Operation 197 or 193 or something. And um, it's basically, hey, your objective has been changed. It is to bring back the specimen. All uh, other assets, crew uh, expendable. Uh, crew yeah. is expendable. And she's like, ah, is it her? And so she runs out and Ash starts locking the doors. And then here comes, um, what's his name? Well, Ash, uh, is, no, Ash is the android. No. Oh, uh, oh Parker? Yeah. The, the, the big yeah. black guy? Yeah, big black guy. Yeah, he's Parker. awesome in this movie. Yeah, no, he's great. But he, it, so basically, Ash has got Sigourney Reaver basically knocked out, and he's taking this magazine, rolls it up, starts shoving it down her throat, and he's basically, you come to find out, he's an android uh, or robot, robot, if you will. But uh, one of the coolest scenes of this movie is when Parker takes, I, I, I want to say a fire extinguisher, I don't know what it was, but he hit him, and his neck just. 
yeah. runs backwards, mm-hmm. and then uh, he still keeps fighting. It's it's a great scene, but yeah. Um, so um, that that puts a little bit more of a why they haven't been able to, and why mm-hmm. Ash's actions. Well, that's a that's a tongue twister. Mm-hmm. His actions uh, wasn't really adding up in the movie. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it's it um it also it does a lot of a uh, world building too in its own little way where um. Um, I'm kind of going back to like having such a small crew. Um, the kind of raises the question, like, well, how do you keep this crew of uh, only um, how many characters? One, two, three, four, five, six, uh, six. Oh, six, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. Well, one, two, three, four, five, six. Only less than eight, less than eight people here. I can't count for nothing. Um, but Ash is essentially like he's the company man in literal android form. Like he has to make sure the company's men. So like, if these workers had the idea of like, hey, let's solve this. You know, you know, million dollar this billion dollar fortune to another company, or take it for ourselves and build an empire for ourselves, and just live the rest of our life on a beach. Ash is there to stop that. He's like he's like a union busting government uh, business guy at the end of the day. Um, he's he's put there the tow the company line at all costs, even if it means expending the crew. <laughs> you know? Right, but but, um, but they even went as far as to as to cover it up by even I believe he was even in the uh, sleep. Uh, pods at the beginning of the yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah, it's so, totally, yeah. So they, they, they had him implanted in there. And yeah. I think the reason that they did that is because they probably knew that the crew wasn't going to make it back. And he could survive with mm-hmm. no air and all that, but he yeah. played, you know, because if you yeah. watch, he never eats in this movie. Yeah. Um, he drinks a white liquid substance, which you think's milk, and he's reaching for a box of cereal, but it never shows him eating. Yep. So there's uh, it's a long And, and he's a new crew member, too. They have a scene later where um, Ripley and Dallas are talking, and he said, like, you know, Ripley asked him, it's like, have you worked with this science officer before? And um, at, um, Dallas said he actually worked with a different science officer for, like, the next five, five previous missions. But literally the day before they left, they brought on Ash to right. take over the role. So he's a new guy. He's, you know, he's the spy, basically, like that Russian spy or something like that in the movie. But he has ulterior motives, and that's kind of his whole thing. But it just goes to show, again, like, the how the company has to deal with like they need to entrust this massive mining vessel to a very small crew and they have the power to control over it but they need they can't like let them know that right. so they need to have the ash in there as the android to make sure that they always do what they're supposed to do he's the supervisor of unyielding loyalty basically like that um and that's kind of interesting to have uh, you know how mischievous companies can be <laughs> this has a very anti-corporate kind of sentiment to it in a minute today um uh, politically speaking um so that's interesting i think uh, as a world building um thing and later we'll probably get to a connection with like blade runner and other kind of stuff like too and how ridley scott has uh, always been fascinated with androids in really cool ways um moving on here to the notes um again um Let's see here. Make sure I got the um, right part. Yep. Um, this film and its sequel inspired the long-running series Metroid, um, the video game series published by Nintendo. The Metroid franchise features a female protagonist, Samus Aran, as a homish as Coin Weaver's character, and a reoccurring alien antagonist, Ridley, is named after um, Ridley Scott as a tribute. That is actually one of my favorite video games. One of the best series of all time. Yep. And they're still working on Metroid 4 now. I'm talking about the original. Yeah, but I'm so excited for Metroid Prime 4. That's going to be fun. And they just did Metroid Dread last year, so that would be pretty excellent. And so cool. Um, this fish, this film is the... This fish. This fish. <laughs> this fish is the official top, fifth, top 250 narrative features films on Letterboxd Media. Um, much of the set of this drama was made up of skeletons of old old aircraft. Ridley Scott wanted to give the ship an aged look as, as it was been banded about space for, as Hurt calls it, 
donkey years. <laughs> so the idea is like this shepherd's been in service for you know you know several you know years and probably a lot more years to come. So one of those things we're going forward. So that's going to be my page. We'll move on back to you, Jimbo. All right, the character Ash did not appear in uh, Dan O'Brien's original script. Uh, the genesis of this movie arose out of Dan O'Brien's dissatisfaction with his first feature, Dark Star, which <laughs> Jack Hopper directed. Kyle and I pulled up the trailer for it. And it can I just say, awesome. Uh, because of that movie's severely low budget, the alien is basically a beach ball. Uh, but I would think more of like a gigantic balloon is what it looked like to me. You know what I mean? I, I definitely I, I, I need to watch this movie. Yeah. Uh, for a second, except to buy, I wanted to craft an altogether more convincing specimen. <laughs> the goofiness of Dark Star also led him in the direction of an intense horror movie. So um, Dark Star is definitely on our list. Uh, there is no dialogue for the first six minutes of this film because in the quietness of space, no one, no can, one can hear you scream. Um the three versions of the landing craft were built for the production, a 12-inch version for long shots, a 48-inch version for the landing sequence, and a 7-ton rig for showing the ship at the rest of the planet's surface. 7-ton rig. That is ambitious for a $11 million film to have a 7-ton rig built for the film. <laughs> uh, the producers of It, The Terror from Beyond Space, considered suing for plagiarism, but didn't. Ah, I've seen It, Terror from Beyond Space. It didn't. That's similar... <laughs> Oh, I, I get why, but also I get why they didn't. <laughs> they couldn't prove that in court for sure. Kyle, the original name for the spaceship was Snark. Snark. <laughs> this was later changed to Leviathan, which sounds a lot cooler, before they finally settled for Nostromo. Yeah. Leviathan would sound awesome. Oh, here you go. The blue laser lights that were used in the alien ship's egg chambers were borrowed from The Who. The band was testing out the lasers uh, for their stage show in the soundstage next door. <laughs> that is so cool. So, hey, can I borrow those? <laughs> I had no idea about that. I wonder who if has a connection to aliens. I wonder, who? <laughs> 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 Who's on first? <laughs> uh, the screech of the newborn alien was voiced by animal impersonator Percy Edwards. He was personally requested by Sir Ridley Scott to do the sound effect and was recorded in only one take, which... Is awesome. That's incredible. Good for them. Uh, the Nostromo is supposed to be 800 feet long, while the craft she is towing is a mile and a half long. Jeez. Yeah, the Nostromo itself is like it's an incredibly small ship, yeah, but it's, it's holding. <laughs> it's yeah. holding a city block, <laughs> basically, in terms of an oil refinery, and it's insane. I love the design of it. it really, yeah. is cool. Uh, the spacesuits worn by Tom Skerritt, Sir John Hurt, and Veronica Cartwright were huge, bulky items lined with nylon and with no outlets for breath or condensation. As the actors and actresses were working under hot studio lights in conditions in excess of 100 degrees Fahrenheit, they spent most of their time passing out. Mm -hmm. Wait for it. Yeah. A nurse had to be on hand at all times to keep supplying them with oxygen. It was only after. Okay, after. After. Not that all multiple people have passed out, but it was only after Sir Ridley Scott's and cinematographer Derek uh, Valiant's children were used in the suits for long shots, and they passed out too. That some modifications were made to the costumes. <laughs> so it was only after it affected 
their yeah. children. I was like, wow. It, it, it is really messed up. And it was like, <laughs> we've gotten a lot better. We still have ways to go. But, man, it's always terrifying well, how much, like, wait, we were almost Okay, but how's this conversation? Hey, well, you know, I put my kid in there and he passed out. Well, why don't you put one of yours in there? Let's see yeah, if he passed out. Just to make sure. <laughs> he passed out, too. Look at that. Yeah. Oh, wait, but let me try it. I got a second one. Let me put it is the ultimate example. Like, when you walk up to a gym bag, this smells awful. And then your friend from across the room will come over and smell it immediately. It's like, you know it's a bad decision. Why'd you do that? <laughs> I don't smell anything. <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly. Oh, wow. Oh. That's ridiculous. Uh, the first day uh, that uh, she shot a scene involving Jones the Cat, Sigourney Weaver's skin started reacting badly. Horrified, the young actress immediately thought that she might be allergic to cats. And that would be easier for production to recast her instead of uh, trying to find four more identical cats. As it transpired... Weaver was reacting to glycerin sprayed on her skin to make her look hot and sweaty. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. Well, you don't have to make her look sweaty, but she's always hot. (laughs) (laughs) She makes Kyle sweaty. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't get that image in people's minds, Jimbo. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The convention will call us. (laughs) I really hope she's at the convention this year. Kyle's going to go and switch glycerin all over his body. Oh, no. You made that so awful. It's weird now. Keep going, please, on the notes. Not that. I'll I'll pay for the picture for you to get it. Probably $100. Hey, who are you? I'm you when you broke out in glycerin because of the... You thought you were allergic to cats. All right. Uh, For the chestburster scene, uh, Sir John Hurt stuck his... uh, stuck his head, shoulders, and arms through a hole in the mess table, linking up with a mechanical torso that was packed with compressed air to create the forceful exit of the alien, and lots of animal guts, which, according to Scorning Reaver, caused the set to smell horribly. The rest of the cat was told uh, that the, that uh, were not told that real blood and guts were being used so to provoke genuine reactions of shock and disgust. Apparently, this worked so well that uh, Yafet Koto went home in complete shock afterwards, locking himself into a room and refusing to talk to his wife for several hours. Yeah, yeah. And there, there's a little bit like it's hard to get all the details necessarily. Who know? Who knew what? When? Kind of like situation like that. But it's very but not clear, only like, that. It's in here in the notes somewhere. No. I'll just throw it in here. But they said that um, they did. They thought he was. Scorpio said, "I thought he was really dying there," because yeah. I guess they didn't tell him a lot. But not only that, yeah. but um, Lambert, mm-hmm. the uh, other girl, yeah. that they didn't tell him how much blood was coming out. And if you watch that, and she just gets covered, and, and goes, now oh, that God. you know that it has all that stinking, yeah. putrid, yeah. real life. Well, I love it too because, like in that scene, they're still like trying to keep him down and restrain. But as soon as the chest starts going out, they all freeze. <laughs> Because they all clearly, and then it's like it's like a good almost two solid seconds where they all just stare and don't know what to do, and then all of them just like snap back to reality, like oh right, we got to hold them down, yeah. and they all go back to acting. It's amazing. Yeah, they thought like, that he was really goner. You really can't possibly rectify. You can't make that scene. You can't act that scene. You really can't. But in the genuine reaction moment, it's just so amazing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, well, Kyle, uh, pretty much um, right now uh, we mm. are getting close to the. Uh, probably 50, 55 minute mark. So what I'm going to do is we are going to end this episode and we will call this part one of Ooh, Alien. Okay. Um, because, you this know, one. if we keep going, there's there's enough here to keep going for another half hour or something. So I figured we'll cut it here. You're right, um, you're right. And then we'll, we'll, we'll have another episode for part two because there's still a lot more interesting stuff uh, to talk about Alien. Mm-hmm. So Kyle, 
with that being said, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut. <laughs>